Okay, today is July the 5th, 2012. Hope you all had a good 4th. And we will prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. You know what our SOP is. A few moments of silent prayer rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It wipes away the cobwebs and the confusion, helps us to stand on the solid rock of your truth. We're so thankful that it is inerrant, it is immutable, it changes not, it's alive and powerful. And we pray that you will help us to focus, to be able to file the things that we learned this evening into our long-term memory banks so they will be at the ready when we're on the front lines and need them. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to continue tonight with where we left off last time. We're in the series, Getting the Gospel Right. We are... We might be... Having some notes here. There it goes. Okay. <clears throat> We're looking at the doctrines uh, that are called uh, of the Reformed theology uh, persuasion and how they are off target with regards to the gospel. You never know when you're going to run into someone that is of this persuasion. I'm talking about a Calvinist into Reformed theology. Most people just run. They don't want to engage anyone, but we, are, we aren't to do that. You need to know what they believe and how to rebut the heresies that they propose. So uh, we started with uh, total depravity. The, the acrostic here is TULIP, total depravity for the T, unconditional election for the U, limited atonement for the L, I is irresistible grace, and P is perseverance of the saints. I've been reading from a little booklet called The Five Points of Calvinism. This is a person that is advocating the doctrines that are associated with Reformed theology. And just to bring us back up to speed very quickly, some of the things that they say we agree with. Here again are some of the things that he says that, uh, with regards to total depravity. He says, first, we do not mean that man does not have a conscience. Okay, we agree that man has a conscience. Secondly, we do not mean that the unregenerate may not perform outward works of charity and moral goodness. We recognize that as well. However, the unsaved cannot and will not do these works for the glory of God, but for selfish reasons. We would agree with that too. In other words, they can't be filled with the Holy Spirit because they're spiritually dead, which means that they cannot do anything that is pleasing to God as far as divine good is done because those works are done by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, we do, we do not believe that the sinner performs all the wickedness that he is capable of doing. So how, I don't care how bad, evil, or wicked someone may be, they're not at their worst all the time. Even, I'm sure, Hitler and maybe uh, Stalin and others had done a few good things, so uh, we would agree with that as well.
And he also says that uh, the, sinner's, the sinner lacks love for God. We would agree to that. Instead of love for God, the unsaved are at enmity with God. We would agree to that also. He says the natural man loves darkness and does not lo and uh, loves light. I mean, excuse me. The natural man loves darkness rather than light. And we would agree to that as well. And so there's a lot of things that they would say that we would agree to. However, uh, we got into some things that we would not agree with. He says that um, a spiritually dead person is dead in his trespasses and sin, and therefore he cannot repent of his sin, believe the gospel, come to Jesus Christ, nor live for him. And that's simply not so because God has made it available. And they say, the, the main thing to remember with this whole thing with regards to total depravity is they don't they call it total depravity, but it would be more accurate for them to say total inability. They are unable even to receive the free gift of eternal life from Jesus Christ simply by believing the gospel. They're unable to do that. They're not able to do anything that is pleasing to God. So uh, that's because they don't believe they have a, a volition that it's a in, in eternity past, God programmed them and has predestined them to go to the lake of fire. And they are unable to do anything about it. They are even unable to accept the gospel. And this is a, a wretched idea that God would so program uh, human beings that they have no choice in the matter because they have no, no volition. They are programmed. And they cannot accept the gospel. They are doomed to the lake of fire. They cannot do anything about it as far as in, in their philosophy and their ideas. And so um, this is supposed to bring God glory, and it's his good pleasure for that to be. As hard as that sounds, that is the, the truth of the matter. And then uh, this is one important point we, we noted, is that they say uh, that... Um, None will accept the Father. Will, excuse me. None will come to the Father except the Father draw them. And so, what the idea is, they say that the Father only draws the elect. The Father only draws those who He choose, chose in eternity past. And of all the billions of people, He's had a certain number that He chose to apply Christ's uh, redemption of the cross to, and the rest are left for the lake of fire. And so you cannot come to Christ unless he draws you, and he only draws the elect. And that was, by the way, uh, in <clears throat> that's in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. You would not come, and except the Father draw them. By the way, except the Father draw them is John 6, 44. That's the main one. They say, unless the Father draws you, you cannot be, you not, you can't be saved. And this is in John 6:44. And so they say the Father only, only draws those who He elects. Now you should make a notation of this. Uh, if you're making notes, or maybe you ought to go to John 6:44 in your Bibles. I'll give you time to do that. 
And you should put a little notation there that will refute this whole idea that God only draws the elect, those that he has predestined to uh, accept the gospel. And at John 6.44, in the margin there somewhere, you want to put John 12.32. John 12.22. Hmm? It's John 12.32. And John 12.32 is Christ speaking. And he says, And if I be lifted up, and that's a first-class conditional clause, meaning if I am lifted up and I, and I am or will be, from the earth, and he's talking about being lifted up on the cross here, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. In other words, that's a way of saying that the gospel goes out to everyone. Anyone can accept the gospel because when Christ was lifted up on the cross, the redemption solution is there for any person who will take it any person who will receive it. And that's how God draws all men is through the gospel. John, yeah, 644, yeah. Context doesn't mean much to them. You know, here's the thing. We have to be careful that we don't get on the same bent that these people have. Some people have an agenda. I know quite a bit about this Calvinism because I was once a cheerleader for Calvinists. I, I, and, and that's all I could think about. I, nothing in the Bible meant anything to me except the elect and predestination and these terms that have to do with uh, Calvinism. And the reason is is that uh, I felt superior to most people because I knew something that, I, that most people didn't know, and that is that God just chose certain ones to, to save and the rest he condemned to the lake of fire. And most people don't think that way. And so this is what... When these people are reading the Bible, I can say this for a surety because I was one of them at one time. When you get to anything that says called, elected, predestined, the elect, anything like that, it's like a buzzword and you just go right into your mode of, of running through your mind what you have been taught. that This is true, that God elected those that he wanted to ch save and Christ only died for those that the Father uh, gave him and they have no choice in the matter. And usually they're very aggressive because they have, they have an agenda. And when, they, when most people who hear this, they don't even, they're not even, they didn't even know that such a thing existed. Haven't you talked to people that have never heard of Calvinism and never even heard of Reformed theology and what that's about? And, and they're caught off guard. And so... I'm saying that because context means nothing. The only context in their mind is this ongoing um, rhythm in their mind about this one issue. It becomes uh, something that is um, 
It just overwhelms everything else. And we have to be careful that we don't do that. And really what it is more than anything is taking one of the attributes of God, which is sovereignty, and elevating it to a bizarre, uh, distorted view. Because God is sovereign and He can do anything that He wants to do. However, He cannot do anything that would compromise any of His other attributes. And you say, well, how can a loving, merciful, gracious God do such a thing? Well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but what they say is, well, it's a mystery. It's, you know, it's inscrutable. His ways aren't our ways. And that's, when that was said to me, it just didn't cut any ice with me. I thought, no, how can we be commanded by God to be merciful and loving and full of compassion and God be less. So, you're right. When it comes to context, you don't see the context. You have blinders on when you've fallen for such an idea. And sometimes it's very, very difficult when you're talking to these people to even get them to listen because they're on that same wavelength all the time. It's the same thing if you're talking to a Jehovah Witness. They have been programmed. And... They, one reason I prepared you all for James chapter 2 because that is in their training. Faith without works is dead. Can that save you? And they have been programmed. This is, the, this is the weak link. You can always go there and these dumbbell Christians, they're not prepared. They don't know what that means. Everyone takes that to be salvific erroneously. And if you take that as being salvific, there's no way that you can defend your position. So... We have to be, have a broad spectrum of doctrines that we are ready to stand and defend and not just have one agenda that we like to go to. Because whoever you're talking to very well might have an agenda and it might not be the one that you're really up on. And the Bible says you are to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you to anyone at any time. That's in First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And so, you know, that means we, that's why we're here. You can't be ready to give an answer f for anyone that comes along with all the heresies, all the apostasy, all the false teaching, all the crud that is out there. You cannot be ready to give an answer if you don't consistently take in the Word. And this, the one reason that I'm going here in the Gospel is because this is prolific. This, this re, uh, Reformed theology is caught on like wildfire in places. It used to be that you hardly ever talked to anyone like that, but now more and more of them are buying into it, and we have to be prepared. God holds us responsible. This is how he reaches these people to give them truth is through us. There's very few pastors out there that even, even will touch it because it's a controversial thing. There's so many people that would leave. Uh, this book that I'm about to give you some quotes out of, What Love Is This? by Dove, Dave Hunt. He wrote this book, and he, he said he, this is the last thing he wanted to do was to write this book because he knew it was going to be controversial. But he felt that the Lord was leading to do it because there was so much heresy out there that had to be addressed. And all these nice Christians that, that had written in and that were getting the Berean Call, which is a newsletter, it's free, I recommend it to anyone. And people have been in there, uh, have been taking it for years. 
wrote him the most caustic, most uh, just nasty letters when he started explaining that this is not our God. That the reason he, he entitled it, What Love Is This?, which, by the way, was his wife's idea. Because our, the Bible describes a God who is loving and, and merciful, full of compassion. He's also just. And he also, his wrath can fall, but it's not what he wants to do. And he certainly would not just, in eternity past, choose certain ones. These will go to heaven. These will not. No one has any say in it. I am sovereign above all. And this gives me pleasure. And that's, I would ask the same question. What love is this? Okay. Um, let's see. I'm, I'm just kind of bringing us up to speed where I'm, uh, this is the, the, the little booklet that's advocating these views. And I'm going to fix, in a moment, I'm going to start quoting you some things from this book. What a refreshing light this is. And it's just, uh, these people, they're good at what they do. And if you're not, if you're not up on doctrine, if you, if you just are a casual, mediocre, get-by Christian, you won't be able to handle these arguments that they, that they give. He goes on to say, The plea is, I, is that I am not able, therefore not responsible... It is a created inability. The fault lies with the Creator. Then there can be no obligation on man's part. I don't know if you remember when I went over this. But if it is required, the obligation remains. What he's saying is man is under condemnation. And if God created you under condemnation, then you're not responsible for that condemnation. But if that condemnation was acquired, and God isn't responsible for your condemnation then you are responsible for it. Now, you ought to see a glaring problem with that because we did acquire condemnation, didn't we? But remember the plan of God? I can just tell you that and you can see it in your mind. The, the fact is that we were condemned for Adam's sin, not our personal sins. It had to be that way in God's plan because if we were condemned for even one of our personal sins then that meant that Christ could not pay for that sin on the cross and we would be in the lake of fire. So we did acquire it, but it wasn't from us. It was from God. And I'm going to show you how he distorts something when we get to unconditional election that he, essentially what he's saying, even though you acquired it through Adam's sin, still uh, you acquired it. It's your responsibility and it, it, it just gets convoluted. I, I've done enough out of that. I want to get to the good part now. <laughs> to the part that um, is, this is uh, chapter 7, and David is handling total depravity. Listen, just, just this, <laughs> this is the first few sentences. He says, of the ten words making up the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, four, that would be total, depravity, unconditional, and irresistible, are not even found in the Bible. And two, limited and perseverance are each found only once. And for the phrases expressed by the letter, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible gaze, perseverance of the saints, none of them appear anywhere from the beginning to Genesis 
to the end of Revelation. You cannot find these terms in the Bible that they're using. You go in there and try to find any of those, it's not there. Calvinism offers a special definition of human depravity that depravity equals inability. You need to write that down if you're taking notes because that's, that's what I was telling you earlier. You see, we, w we would attest and we would agree that uh, if you want to use the term that man is totally depraved, we would sign on to that, but not the way that they mean it. We would mean that man in his, in his sinful condition, which we are born into sin, are we not? I mean, we can go, in fact, if we just keep percolating, we'll get to unconditional election and we'll go to Romans chapter 5 and I'll prove it to you. You were born already condemned. And so that means that, what it really means is that from the moment you took your first breath, the salvation was available to you. Because this is something that's always true condemnation must always precede salvation. And so when we were condemned, when we took our first breath, that means that, what? Salvation was available to us because we had to be condemned first. And we could not be condemned for our own personal sins. If that was the case, then Christ going to the cross could not pay for them because we would already have committed the sin and be condemned for it. But that's not the way God planned. It's not the way it is. We were condemned for Adam's sin. So they think that depravity equals inability. And this special definition necessitates both unconditional election and irresistible grace. Now I want you to get that. Listen to that. Once you start off on the wrong foot of total depravity, meaning inability, which it does not mean, then everything else is going to follow suit. It's just like trying to start... If you, have you ever taken dancing lessons? I've taken dancing lessons before. And the man always starts out on what? His left foot. If you start out on the right foot, everything from that point on is going to be a nightmare. It's going to be a disaster because you start out on the wrong foot. It's the same way with total depravity. If you get into that, this erroneous concept that total depravity equals inability, then it means, okay, then the next step, based on that wrong premise, is going to be wrong as well. And the next wrong premise, when you get off onto that, is unconditional election. And then once you get into un un unconditional election, the next thing is you have to have irresistible grace. See, if you're totally depraved, you can't do anything. You can't even believe the gospel. Then God has to choose you in eternity past and give you the grace. In fact, you have to, he's got to regenerate you before you even have faith, because you can have faith. And the Bible never does that. Always it's faith first, and then you're regenerated on the basis of your faith. It just all gets off when you start out on the wrong foot. Here's this next line that I have. It says, um, It is, in fact, unreasonable to say that a person is unwilling to do what he is unable to do. Think about that. How can you be unwilling to do something that you are unable to do? It's unreasonable to say that, and that's part of their, their whole idea there. Um, Calvinism is guilty of both absurdity and injustice by declaring man to be incapable of repentance and faith 
then condemning him for failing to repent and believe. I'm going to say that again. You understand what I'm saying? Because that's what they're saying. They're saying that man is unable to repent, change his mind about Christ, and have faith, and then condemning him for failing to repent and believe in Christ. They're saying he can't do it. He's unable. And then he turned right around and he's condemned for it. And that is guilty of both injustice and it's also an absurdity. Never, however, does the Bible suggest that because of Adam's original sin, all of his descendants lack the ability to turn through faith in Christ. Now, I was going to go at this point to Romans chapter 5, but I think there's a better spot to do that in the next letter, which is you, unconditional election. Most of you, I don't even know if you all know what unconditional election is or what it means yet, but it goes into the same idea that if you're totally depraved and you can't do anything even except the free gift offer of salvation through believing in Christ, if you can't do that, then it means that God had to elect you in eternity past upon no other condition other than, well, I would just say it would be his arbitrary choice. They definitely say he didn't choose you because of his foreknowledge knowing that you were going to accept the gospel. And yet that's the case. That's, That's why he could elect us in eternity past is because he's got foreknowledge he knows everything that is in the divine decrees. He knows everything. The, the time is nothing with him. And we were chosen and elected. Listen to this. Not based on his sovereignty, but on based on his omniscience. And a subcategory of omniscience is foreknowledge. And that is why we were elected. Yes. Okay, the question was, what, what is the purpose? If you can't believe the gospel, why give the gospel? Why? Well, here's the thing. The whole issue of man even being created to begin with, it, the pivotal point, the thing that is so important, is that he has something in common with the angels, and that is volition. God, we resolve the angelic conflict. Satan sinned. And God held him responsible. And he pointed at God and said, it's your fault. It's not my fault. You're the one that gave me volition. You're responsible for what I did because you gave me the choice. And so that it was absurd, but and God could have just... And there was a trial held, we know, because of the, um, the verdict is given in Matthew 25, 41. And so we know that they had volition. And instead of God just sending them right to the lake of fire, He said, okay, I'm going to prove to all angelic creatures, I'm going to prove to everyone, the whole universe, that I am just and righteous in sentencing you and your cohorts to the lake of fire. And what did He do? He created another creature, different from angels, lower than angels. However, they had something very much in common that was the whole enchilada right there is... Volition. That's why God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in there and told them, don't eat of it, because that would make their volition function. 
And without that, without volition, in other words, if God just pre-programmed every person and they were just little puppets, little robots out there doing, going out there, then what would be the purpose of anything? There would be no purpose. It couldn't bring Him glory. If God programmed people to love Him, well, that's not true love. You can't force someone to love you. And there, and there would be no purpose in it. not on. Did you push the, is the green light on? It's on? I can't. Yeah, I can hear you a little better. It needs to be turned up a little bit. All right, go ahead. Answer that, because uh, I've, I've talked to them. I've had their their answer on that. What they say is that Adam and Eve are the only ones that had volition, because they were created perfect. And once they used their volition, once Adam used his volition to fall, then from that point on, we are all and here we go again into this totally depraved. We we have no volition. All and it's true that we all have an old sin nature. And it is true that we cannot do anything to save ourselves. We can't do anything to add to our salvation. We can't do anything to please God by our own human effort. All that is true. And if that is the meaning for total depravity, I would be on board. But they go too far when they say it means inability. And it means that they don't... See, if you're programmed in eternity past to be one of the ones that's going to hell... There's no volition in it. You're you're just toast. Yeah. Well, they say that that's the way that the elect get it. That the elect hear the gospel. And they they accept it. Of course, they can't accept it. God has to give them the the faith to believe it anyway. That's irresistible grace. But let me, as I go on, it's going to answer some more questions. I'm going to uh, c- continue here. This is a, 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 <clears throat> a important point here. All are commanded to repent and turn to Christ, as Paul declared on Mars Mars Hill in Athens. God commanded all men everywhere to repent. That's Acts 17, verse 30. To say that God commands men to do what they cannot do without His grace and withholds grace that they need and punishes them eternally for failing to obey is to make a mockery of God's Word, of His mercy and love, and is to be uh, liable. It's libeling His character. Did you get all that? Do I need to read that again? Okay, because there's a lot there. Everyone is commanded to turn to Christ, to repent, turn to Christ, Acts 17.30. So this is a commandment by God. So to say that God commands men to do what they cannot do without His grace. See, total, total 
Depravity to them means inability. They cannot do it, but He commands them to do it. Then withhold the grace they need. In other words, if you can't do it, God has to extend grace to you. And here, remember we went over some detail last time with the importance of common grace? That's the common grace they need. But they don't understand that, and so they say they re- that God withholds the grace that they need in order to accept the gospel, which simply means to understand it because it's spiritual phenomenon. So he commands them to do it. He withholds that grace from them, and then he punishes them eternally for failing to obey. That is, failing to obey something that's impossible for them to even understand. It's to make a mockery of God's word, of his mercy and his love. He goes on to say, It is neither stated in Scripture nor does it follow logically that anyone as a result of his depravity, even if his every thought is evil, is thereby unable to believe the glad tidings of the gospel and receive Christ as his Savior. Now, here's an example for you. Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon. And he was... Uh, it's hard for us to relate to to people like this and to that time. But Nebuchadnezzar, when it says he was king, he was essentially king over the known world at that time, just about. I mean, he was... He was the most powerful man on earth. And he could come in and say, he could say, okay, uh, I, let's order in some pizza. And so somebody brings in the pizza, and he doesn't like, hey, I don't like your hair. Kill that guy right there. And they, they wouldn't hesitate. They'd kill him right there. And, and nobody would think about it. That was the power that he had. No one questioned him. And uh, there was a time when he was up on the ramparts of the castle, and this is David got in trouble, same place. They ought to stay off of those places. And he just said, you know, everything is mine, and I, I'm not answerable to anybody. That's essentially what he's saying. And God was listening. <laughs> and he had to find out the hard way. Uh, he had to eat grass for about seven years. There's some kind of disease that makes you act like cattle. I mean, go out and graze on the outside, and his hair grew long, his fingernails and everything. He, didn't, he was just like a, a, a bovine. For about seven years. And finally, even in that depraved state, he was able to look up and be humble and want mercy from the God of the universe. And he was saved. So I'm giving that illustration. This isn't in the book, but I'm just giving this illustration to prove that it doesn't matter how wicked or how evil someone may be, that doesn't mean that just because they're that evil that they cannot accept the good news of the gospel. It is like offering cool water to someone dying of thirst on the desert. Anybody, any, it's a gift. Anybody can do it. What ability of any kind is required to receive a gift, by the way? None, of course. Then how can any sinner suffer from the inability to receive the free gift of eternal life? To receive the gift of salvation, one must believe the gospel. Never does the Bible declare this to be impossible for the natural man. Now, the natural man we see in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Greek word there is sukikos. Suke. 
Sukikos means the soulish man. He only has two parts. He only has a body and a soul. But even a Sukikos man, the natural man, can still receive a gift, the gift of eternal life, simply by uh, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I want to point something out to you. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Because if you say that the natural man, this is what Dave said, that never does the Bible say that it's impossible for the natural man uh, to not understand the gospel or to understand the gospel. Here's, the, here's uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So if you were a Calvinist, you would jump on this like a duck on a June bug, saying, uh-huh, see, natural man, he's, he's not one of the elect. And he cannot, understand, um, he cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And, and they would say, that's his total depravity, his un inability this is what Dave says. He says, however, this cannot be speaking of the gospel. Paul is not referring to the gospel that is to be preached to all mankind, but to the wisdom of God in a mystery. If you look above that, the whole thing is about wisdom and, and men being pumped up. And uh, the Corinthians, you know, they were part of the Hellenistic culture. And they, they worshipped wisdom and debate and philosophy and all these things. And God is bringing man back down to um, reality. And he's saying that God has, has he's used, if you, I'll just paraphrase this part of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. What he's saying is, um, you don't have anything that God didn't give you anyway. If you're smart, the only reason you're smart is because God gave you that intelligence. If you're strong, it's the same thing. You don't have anything that God didn't give you anyway. And it goes on to say that God uses the cast-offs, those that are really not any big deal, to become a big deal. What, what was uh, David? He was a shepherd, wasn't he? I mean, you go throughout the Bible, nearly always God will take somebody that is just not important in people's eyes, and he will lift them up. He takes the, it says that he takes that which is not and makes them something into something that is, is, is big. Now, man is just the opposite. When, when Jesus was born, was he, why wasn't he born in Jerusalem in the best, greatest building there was with all of the religious people around him? Then now how man would do it? No, that's not God's way. God has him born in a stable didn't even have a room at, at an end. Didn't even have room for him to... This is how God operates because it's not anything of man that is of any import. It's all about God. And every time a person starts to think they're really something, they're all that, then God 
has to humble them. It's the, it's the ones that are humble that God can use. That's what he's talking about there. Now, I will say this. This does say to this extent that the natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God, which is part of the Spirit of God, is common grace. Man cannot understand the gospel apart from common grace. That's how important it is for you to know that. And for you to know that you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, you go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 16 and 17, and you go to, uh, first, I mean, to uh, John chapter 16, and what is it, verse uh, 7 and 8? 7 through 11? See, you have to have these at the ready because it's true that apart from that, man couldn't understand the gospel. And they might very well go to those to try to prove their point. Christ says that the Holy... This is reading a quote again from the book. Christ says that the Holy Spirit will reprove the world of sin because they do not believe on me. Surely, for unbelief to be sin, the sinner must understand that he is rejecting and has the capacity to repent, to believe the gospel. We're going to get into this. In a, when we get into to, uh, unconditional election, do any of you know what that is? Could any of you explain anything about it at this point? Okay, well, that's, that, that is just as horrendous as all the rest, even in this total depravity. But the main thing is with total depravity, you're starting out on the wrong foot. And if you're unable even to accept the free gift offer of salvation through simply believing, and they say believing is a work, which it is not, if you can't even do that, then all the rest is off kilter, and as we'll see. Here's another quote. Jesus, oh, excuse me, just as no ability is required on the part of the endangered person to be rescued from drowning or from a burning building or on the part of the imprisoned criminal who is pardoned to accept release, you understand what he's saying? There's nothing required for a person who is drowning or being saved from a burning building or to pardon a criminal. If you're drowning and somebody is going to save you, what part do you have to play in being rescued? You're just, you're just a blob. Same thing as somebody rescues you out of a burning house. I mean, a lot of times they're unconscious. What can they do to add to it? Nothing. Or if you are pardoned, if, someone, if you're a criminal and you're pardoned, uh, what do you have to do to accept your release? I mean, they open the jail door and you walk out. What? There's, there's nothing on your part that is required. That's the point he's saying. He's saying, um, so no ability is required of the person whom Christ rescues from eternal condemnation. You see how that goes along with all these other rescues? If you're going to be rescued, there's nothing you can do to begin with or else you wouldn't need to be rescued, would you? And so the idea that you can't even accept the gospel because you're so t totally depraved and you're, it's an inability, that's essentially what God does for us. We can't add anything to our salvation. We're just like a person who is drowning that has gone limp, like a person in a burning house that went unconscious, or like a prisoner that just says, okay, and he just walks out. We don't add anything to it. There is nothing required, so why would there be any any inability. Do you see what I'm saying? That's what the case that he's making here, which I think is a good case. 
He says, according to the Bible, however, and according to Christ himself, a man's problem is not inability. Men fail to come to Christ not because they cannot, listen to this, but because they will not. And what does that necessitate? Volition, right? And they don't believe you can have volition. And here's the verse, John 5:40. You might jot that one down. And you will not come to me that you might have life. This is John 5:40. This is Christ speaking. And what does he say? You what? Will not come to me. Not that you cannot, you will not come to me that you might have life. The offer is there. Calvinists can, of course, find many scriptures describing man's evil heart and practices. None of these scriptures, however, states that a man cannot believe the gospel unless he is one of the elect and has been given the faith by a sovereign God. I mean, there's a lot of people in there that, in the Bible that are, are wicked and everything, but none of that has anything to do with them accepting a, the offer from God. There's an example I gave you a while ago was Nebuchadnezzar. Defining depravity as an inability requires God to sovereignly regenerate man and without any recognition, understanding, or faith on man's part, bring him to spiritual life. Now, you got that? And as, as wild as this may seem, that's exactly what they say happens is God regenerates someone. They don't even know they're being in, regenerated. And then he infuses, I like the word infuses, somehow he gives them, he infuses faith in their part so that then they can be saved. But that's, you know, I can say this, that's bass backwards. <laughs> I've, I've got a book on phrases and it says that that's, uh, it says it that way. Anyway, I'm just trying to, look. that's what came to my mind and that's what it is. It's getting the cart before the horse. Listen to it again. Defining depravity as inability requires God. If, you, if man is unable to do anything, he can't even receive. If he has no volition and he's unable, he's totally depraved, he can't do anything to please God, then that necessitates that God must regenerate the man first without any recognition. He doesn't know what's happening. No understanding or faith on man's part and bring him to spiritual life. And that's what they think happens. It's bizarre. And yet people buy into it all the time. Where does the Bible say one must be regenerated before they believe the gospel? Please show me that verse. You show me that verse and I'll apologize to everyone and say, total depravity means inability and God has got to regenerate you and give you the faith to believe because you can't come up with it. But I'm not going to say that until you show me that verse in the Bible. And I'm confident you can't. The, always, uh, the Bible always presents faith as the condition of salvation. Always. Faith. Faith alone. Because faith is non-meritorious. It's just a system of perception. You used faith when you, faith when you came in and sat in that chair. I don't know. You probably looked at where you were going to seat, sit. If that chair was made out of tissue paper, I don't believe you'd sit in it. You wouldn't have any, any faith in it. You said, okay, I think that chair is going to hold me. There your bottom went in the chair. That's just, do you get any merit for that? 
Is that a work? No, it's just something we use all the time. What God does for the elect, He could do for all if He so desired. That He doesn't would prove that the one who is love lacks love for all mankind, which is contrary to all Scripture. In other words, if God can save the elect... See, the, 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 the elect are totally depraved as well. And the only solution once you buy into this inability idea is that, okay, if they can't do anything, then what God has to do is do everything for them. I mean, they can't even believe. They can't even accept the, the free gift. That's how twisted this is. By the way, we're not going to get to unconditional election tonight. Uh, let's see, where am I? Um, okay, here's another one that he comes up with all the time. I mean, not the, the Calvinists do. They say that to prove that the unbeliever is totally depraved and in inability, he says that no one seeks God. Now, let's just bear, bear with me for a moment here. They go to verses like um, in Genesis where man's thought is only evil continually and his heart is desperately wicked and deceitful and all these things, you know. And then he says um, that none seek after God. Uh, the statement that none seeks after God deny that any man, no matter how depraved, can respond by intelligent choice without first being regenerated if God seeks and draws him. Neither does the Bible teach that God only seeks and draws an elect, but no other. See, we saw that a while ago, remember, in uh, John 12:32. Remember that? If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Indeed, many passages affirm that under the drawing of the Holy Spirit, sinful man can make a moral response. And this is what they say he can't do, but the Bible says otherwise. Here's a few verses to show you. And you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. That's Jeremiah 29, 13. That's seeking. It's a command. And yet they say that you, will, you can't seek. You know, you're in, uh, unable to seek. He, God, is a rewarder for those who diligently seek him. That's Hebrews 11:6. Even the wicked are commanded to turn to the Lord with never so much as a hint that it is impossible until God regenerates them. This is Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6 and 7. How about this one? If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. That's John 7:37. Thirst there is seeking, seeking salvation. All those who thirst are offered the same living water which Christ offered to the woman at the well, John 4, uh, John 4, 10. And who, whosoever will, let him take of the water freely. That's in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. That's right at the end of the book. And I'll handle this whosoever next time, maybe, if I get to it. What's this whosoever deal? Well, I don't want to get off on that one yet. 
If the doctrine of total depravity is defined in TULIP were true, then from Genesis to Revelation we have a God who pleads for thousands of years with seemingly endless procession of billions of individuals to repent and turn to Him. Individuals who are so hopelessly depraved that they can do nothing except persist in rebellion against Him unless He regenerates them. If He wants those with whom He pleads to repent to to repent and turn to Him, would God not give them the necessary grace to do so? He does that for the elect. Why not all? Isn't that a good question? And why, why is He pleading with those that He's already predestined for hell anyway? And they can't do anything about it. Isn't that a mockery? Why would you plead with those to uh, be saved when they have no ability? Unless you give them the faith, and you chose not to in eternity past, so they're headed for, the, for hell. There's no question that, Cal, that if Calvinism were true, there would be no reason for God to urge men to repent. Yet He does. It is both useless and senseless for our God to plead with the elect. You know, he doesn't have to plead with the elect. You know, if He's going to plead, somebody might say, well, He's pleading for the elect. Well, He doesn't have to plead with them. Why? Because he's going to infuse faith in them when he's ready anyway. He doesn't have to plead with them. So, and why would he plead with elect when he's going to give them the grace that they need? And why would he plead with the non-elect because they can't accept it anyway, unless he gives them the grace and he's chosen not to? It is both useless and senseless for God to plead with the elect. He has already predestined them to salvation and will effect it sovereignly before any faith is exercised on their part. Nor does it make any better sense for God to present the gospel to uh, and plead with the non-elect who cannot believe in it until they have been sovereignly regenerated, which He's not going to do. But that won't happen because they are damned by God, God's eternal decree. Yet He continues to plead and blame them for not repeating repenting even while he withholds from them the essential grace that uh, they need which he gives only to the elect. Do you see how ridiculous this is? Okay. I'm out of time. At the end of this, um, next time we're going to go a little bit more in total depravity and then we're going to get into the um, un, un, uh, unconditional election. You know, you might think that this, I don't know what you think. I never know what anybody thinks. I just teach. That's, uh, that's all I know to do. But you might think, man, this is dragging on. There's so much that he's given us here. Listen, I'm giving you the little bitty tip of the iceberg here. This, this book is over 600 pages long. There went my bookmark. I don't care. Anyway, do you see what I'm saying? I'm just giving you the highlights. But what will happen if you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you're concentrating? You're, these concepts are going to go into your soul and your alarm bells are going to go off when you start hearing someone start drifting over into this idea that total depravity means inability. And they'll throw up that says no one seeks God. Oh, no, wait. There's a lot of verses that talks about God, of people seeking God. And there's so many things that are twisted and contorted that you have to think clearly. And I'm giving you those 
those things, verses from the Bible, precepts, logic, all that, so you will be able to stand and help these people out. Because listen, when you are into this theology, this erroneous theology, you know what makes it such a nightmare? You have no assurity of eternal life. You can't. Because you don't know if you're really elect or not. How, do you, how can you know that you're one of the elect ones? You have no volition. Did he really choose you? Did the faith you have, was it, really a, was it truly faith? Was it effective faith? Are you sure that that's the faith that God infused into you and not some kind of erroneous faith that you just thought might happen? The only thing you do is just try to be as good as you can because the perseverance of the saints, you've got to hold it to the end. And you can release these people from this bondage if you know how. And you're learning how. And God will very possibly use you to do that. Let's close. Father, we thank you for this time that we can look at these matters. Few people even care. Few people even know about these things. But we have to face reality. And the reality is that this heresy is spreading. And we want to hold our ground. We want to stand firm for the faith and truth. So we pray that you will help us to inculcate this into our thinking system and that we will remember these things and be able to hold the line. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.